0: and longtime listener Entrix wrote in on Twitter to ask if i had done an episode on undersea cables. And you know what? I haven't. So today we're going to start to talk about them because as it turns out there's a lot to cover with undersea cables to kind of understand not just how they work, but the challenges that people faced in order to make them a reality in the first place. This is also a timely topic because uh, recently a company called x made headlines for the Morocco-UK power plant project. That project's goal is to create a solar and wind farm in Morocco and use a very, very long subsea power cord, essentially, to send electricity to the UK. Now, while a lot of headlines call this the longest subsea cable, that's misleading because there are actually many different types of cables and technically, the CMEWE3 cable, that's E A W 3 the number 3 cable, is actually about 10 times longer than what the Morocco-UK cable will be, but we're going to get to all that probably in the next episode. Definitely not this one. But as Antrix pointed out in a tweet to me, undersea cables trace their history back to the mid-19th century. So... In order to understand all of this, we really have to take a moment and talk about the telegraph and the development of the first undersea cables. So, there were a few things that had to happen for undersea cables to even become a necessity. You know, one of those was the development of the electric telegraph. Because without that, there's no need to worry about subsea cables, right? If you don't have long-distance electric-based communication then cables aren't really a thing you got to worry about, at least as far as connecting, say, an island to a continent. Now, the word telegraph is Greek, and it means essentially distant writing. But this word actually predates electric telegraphs. For example, uh, there were semaphore systems, ones that used visual cues with flags. Those were used throughout France and were really developed during the Napoleonic Wars. And that was referred to as telegraph before any kind of electric version came along. In the late 1700s, you had various smarty pants around the world experimenting with electricity, uh, you know, like Ben Franklin. (laughs) And this was just something that was just beginning to be understood at the time. Alessandra Volta had created a a sort of proto-battery that we later called a voltaic pile. And then later on, we had the voltaic cells. These inventions could produce a good electric current, but at a very low voltage. Now, we need a reminder here because we're going to be talking about electricity a lot. Voltage in electricity is sort of similar to water pressure in a plumbing system. You could think of it as how much oomph a current has. And current you can think of as the amount of electricity present in a system uh, of flowing electricity or flowing electrons. So if we want a really quick analogy, if you had a low voltage, high current source of electricity, that's kind of like a lazy river, right? The river can be really wide and it might be really deep. So you got a lot of water there, but that water isn't moving very quickly. It's just lazily going down. A high-voltage, low-current electric device produces a very tight, high-pressured stream. So think of like a, a concentrated stream of water coming out of a pressure hose. You do, It's not nearly the same amount of water as the lazy river. It's much less current, in other words. But the pressure, or voltage, is way higher. Well, before Volta's discovery scientists and engineers were mostly reliant on devices that would build up electrostatic charges. So electrostatic charges have a high voltage, but a low current, and they have limited applicability in things where you need sustained electric current. So Volta's invention would allow for new applications of electricity. Now, in the early 1800s, you had some other smarty pants like Hans Christian Orsted of Denmark. And uh, by the way, As always, my apologies for all the mispronunciations I'm going to do of all the different names. Uh, That is on me, and I apologize. However, he discovered that electricity and magnetism have a connection. He observed that a magnetic needle would deflect from magnetic north if it came close to a wire that was carrying an electric current or transmitting an electric current. And so we first began to realize that Electromagnetism is a thing, that there is this relationship between electricity and magnetism. This would lead to yet more smarty pants people thinking of ways that we could use electricity through wires to communicate across vast distances. One way, a way that Sir William Fothergill Cook and Sir Charles Wheatstone suggested, was to have a multi wire system that would use up to five needles. They experiment with different ones, but the one that they would use heavily would have five needle pointers, and that would be at the receiving end of this system. So you could send different electrical signals down these different wires and thus direct these needles, these pointers, to point to different letters on a placard that would have the alphabet there. Uh, The system would remain in use in the UK up through the early 20th century. So the UK was reliant on this system, whereas the rest of the world would move on to other ones. The neat thing about the system is that it arranged the alphabet in a diamond pattern. Uh, So it only used 20 letters of the alphabet. It left out the letters C, J, Q, U, X, and Z. So sometimes you had to do, you know approximations of certain words. And uh, the letter A was at the top point of the diamond. And then, you know, you had B and D at the next level, and then so on and so forth. And then at the bottom, you had the letter Y. And the five needles were split right in the middle of this diamond. They were in the widest part of the diamond, pointing up and down normally, which meant that they weren't pointing at any specific letter. So by sending signals down specific wires, you could make needles point to a specific letter. You would have both of, you know, two needles that were on a a diagonal line with a specific letter, and by looking at the common letter that both needles were pointing at, you could spell out words. An interesting approach, not necessarily the fastest, but it worked. Later on, Wheatstone would create a different system that had a circular dial uh, and a needle on the inside. And you had the alphabet laid out along the inside circumference of the circle. So sort of like an analog clock, except instead of numbers for the time, you had the alphabet. And you also could have numbers as well. Then you had keys that matched the letters and numbers that were along the outside of the dial. So pressing down on a key would indicate, okay, I want to send this letter. Um, and this is the sending station. And then you would have a receiving station on the other end that would have a similar dial with a needle and the letters and numbers in it. And pressing down a specific key would end up sending a signal that would have the needle on the other side point to the relevant letter or number. This way was really neat. And the way it worked is super cool, but I'm going to have to save that for another episode because I'm supposed to focus on subsea cables. And I wrote about... A page and a half of stuff before I realized I am getting way off track, so I'll spare you for now, but that'll come up maybe in a future episode. Now, in America, it was Samuel Morse, who interestingly was uh, an art professor, who came up with the famous method for transmitting messages electrically using a special code, one that today, of course, we refer to as the Samuel Code. No, wait, no, I'm sorry. No, uh, Morse Code. Morse Code. Morse Code. Morse code uses dots and dashes to represent letters and numbers. And by tapping the dots and dashes on a telegraph key, you could send pulses of electrical signal down a wire and a receiver at the other end could then emboss dots and dashes on a strip of paper. So you could actually read out the dots and dashes and translate it that way. Or later on, you had engineers who were trained to listen for dots and dashes and you had a device that was essentially tapping uh, like a little anvil, tapping out the messages and you would just listen. Later, a guy named Alfred Vail would partner with Morse to refine this system and make it uh, a little more practical, uh, essentially looking at the most frequently used letters and using the the simplest uh, dots and dash patterns to represent those letters, as well as to redesign the telegraph key itself. By 1837, Vale and Morse were demonstrating this technology, and by 1843, they secured funding to set up an experimental telegraph line that stretched the 35 miles, or around 60 kilometers, between Baltimore, Maryland, and Washington, D.C., here in America. The project used poles that were erected alongside a railroad line and wires connected to the poles via glass insulators, and it worked. Uh, One thing that really amazed me as I was doing research into this, just as a quick digression, is how quickly things moved. Because this was 1843, and we're going to be talking about a transatlantic subsea cable by the end of this episode that came uh, a little more than a decade after that. And to think of it being 10 years, a little more than 10 years between stringing 60 kilometers of cable between two cities in America to laying a subsea cable across the Atlantic Ocean blows my mind. Well, anyway, the demonstration was a success, and it didn't take long for railroad companies to start building out telegraph systems. And early on, they were almost exclusively used to help keep track of traffic on the rail system, to better plan out routes and to avoid long delays or accidents. By the end of the 1840s, journalists were starting to make use of the telegraph system to wire stories across vast distances, and businesses began to get interested in this as well. The ability to be able to conduct business between cities without having to take, you know, a train ride or otherwise have, you know, like, uh, like people on horseback travel from one city to another. Because keep in mind, this is, this is before the automobile has really become a thing. So yeah, there were limited ways of getting information from one point to another. However, until 1850, uh, these distances were all over land. The reach of telegraph systems ended at the coastlines, which meant that while regions could develop a sophisticated internal communication system, you know, inside their borders, or maybe between borders of neighboring nations that shared, you know, a land border, once you hit the ocean, you had to rely on other methods, much slower methods. So a mail ship, isn't a ship that carries mail not a not a gendered ship, but a mail ship between London and New York could take nearly a month to travel across the ocean. Uh, a fast one might be able to make the journey in three weeks. By the mid nineteenth century, steamships were largely taking the place of sailing vessels. They could make the journey in up around ten days, so still more than a week to get from one point to another. That's pretty slow for news to travel. It was difficult to act with alacrity if you were relying upon information from across the pond. So, there was a strong use case to make for creating an undersea cable infrastructure that could connect distant parts of the world, you know, parts that were separated by oceans. And even in Europe, like England in particular, saw the need to do this because While the distance was not nearly as great to travel from, say, uh, Dover to France, the delay in getting information from other parts of Europe was still pretty considerable, so there was definitely a need for that as well. This did, however, present some engineering challenges because you had to find a way to make this both practical and affordable. Now, this is going to be obvious, but I need to establish it it is way easier to repair and maintain infrastructure that's above the water than it is to do below the water. And that's because we live above the water, and we can't live below the water, at least not with the same amount of freedom. And since the Merfolk seem completely uninterested in helping us maintain communication channels, we have to take that into consideration. To that end, we have to treat cables, subsea cables, different from terrestrial cables. We have to take into consideration what being submerged in ocean water is going to do to a cable over time. We have to understand that those effects can be detrimental. We have to be able to estimate how long a particular cable is likely to remain viable, assuming no catastrophic instances occur. Like, assuming that a ship's anchor doesn't tear through the cable, for example. So we have to make sure that we have the budget to not just install a cable in the first place, but to potentially replace that cable when we near the end of its estimated lifespan. It has to make financial sense or else it's a loss in the long run, right? So you can argue, yes, it's invaluable to have two distant places connected together. But if you're constantly having to replace the communication channel, then that invaluable might start to take on a value (laughs) where you just say, yeah, it's invaluable, but I don't want to pay for it. (laughs) So coming up with a way to make subsea cables work extends beyond just the technology. Uh, I mean, obviously the tech is a critical component or else nothing happens. But you can't ignore the financial element, right? Or the physical challenges. Because if you do that, you're setting yourself out to fail. So... We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about a couple of other things before we get to the first subsea cable, like some basic things about electrical transmission. But before we do that, let's take this quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. With SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R rcom When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app,
1: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills.
0: In the 1820s and 1830s, you had all these various smarty pantses all learning about electromagnetism. And we now know that if you pass an electric current through a conductive material, that generates a magnetic field. And similarly, should you have a conductive material, like a wire, encounter a magnetic field, that field will induce an electric current to flow through the conductive wire, And you've probably played with this in school, making a simple electromagnet with like an iron nail, some copper wire, and a battery. You know, you connect the wire to either terminal of the battery. Uh, You've coiled the wire around the nail to act as a a core, and it becomes magnetic. You can pick up paper clips and stuff. Uh, I remember I did that in school. I imagine that people still do. Well, there's a whole lot more to electromagnets. But we're just going to focus on a couple of little things first. And the, the first important bit is because of this relationship between electricity and magnetism, we need to make sure that wires and cables that we use to transmit electricity have really good insulation around them. And that's because without insulation, that, that is, without some sort of barrier that resists the flow of electricity and the interaction of magnetic fields, you have the potential for interference. So let's say you've got two copper cables and there's no shielding on them. You don't have any insulation on them and you've got them close to each other. And then let's say you send electricity through one of those two cables, not the second one, just cable number one. Well, as the electricity flows through cable number one, That creates a magnetic field, which overlaps to the second cable, and that induces a current to flow. Now, if we're using direct current, something like a battery, uh, the second cable will only have electric current running at the very beginning when that magnetic field first hits it, but then it'll stop. However, if the source is alternating current, then, which means that the current is, is changing direction many times per second then what you have is a fluctuating magnetic field because the magnetic field's direction also changes many times per second. That will continue to induce electricity to flow in the second cable. This would be interference. Uh, It creates phantom signals when no signal is intended, uh, or it interferes as one signal overpowers or changes another. Uh, I remember back in the day I had these cheap desktop speakers that I had connected to my computer and I would put my cell phone down on the desk and every time my cell phone got a notification it would make this weird electric chirping noise in the speakers uh, because that was radio frequency interference that was inducing a a current to flow through the speakers. So These are things that can happen and you don't want them to, right? You want to shield your components so that only the signals you want to send are going through. So you have to protect against that. Now, in the 19th century, there were people who discovered a plant that had a a kind of sap, essentially, that was found to be a really effective insulator. So it resisted the flow of electricity and protects or insulates against interference. That material is called gutta percha. It's a biologically derived latex. And like I said, the plant has the name gutta percha, but that's also the name everyone used for the the derived latex from it. Now, this was fortunate at the time, but I should also add that the telecommunications industry would spell doom for the gutta percha trees because the rampant harvesting of the trees created an unsustainable situation. And before too long... People realize, oh, we need an alternative to this because pretty soon there's not going to be any of this plant left on the planet. We'll have harvested it all. Anyway, gutta percha has many of the same properties as synthetic rubber, including the ability to insulate conductive materials. Next, we need to think about what happens with electricity as it travels over greater distances of wire. Um, This is going to get more complicated later in this episode, because as it turns out, There are certain things that we have to take into consideration with any length of cable. And then there are other things that come into play when you're talking about cable that happens to be under the water. But under most circumstances, even a great electrical conductor has some level of resistance. Now, I say under most circumstances because, as it turns out, if you're able to super cool a conductor, like a good conductor and you're able to get it down to an incredibly low temperature, like just a a few units of Kelvin above absolute zero, then you can have a superconductor which has no resistance. But under most normal conditions, you know, conductors have resistance to electricity. You can think of electrical resistance as kind of being like friction. It's working against or resisting the flow of electricity. So resistance depends upon a few different factors, such as the material itself, like some conductors, are better than others. Like, copper's a really good conductor. And it also depends upon the thickness of that material. A thin copper wire has a greater electrical resistance than a thick copper cable, for example. Well, resistance means that as you transmit electricity across this conductor, you'll see the electrical energy diminish over distance, And we know that energy can be neither created nor destroyed, right? So we're not destroying that energy. However, that energy is converting from one type to another. In this case, the resistance causes the conductive material to heat up and we lose some of that electrical energy in the form of waste heat. So if you want to push electricity further down a transmission line, you really have to use a lot of voltage. And remember, voltage is the pressure in the system. So with alternating current, we can actually use devices called transformers, which while they are not robots, they are arguably more than meets the eye. If you were to look at an electrical transformer, like open up a cover, and by the way, never do that. But if you did do that, you would see that it consists of two coils of conductive wire wrapped around a core, usually a ferromagnetic iron core, in a simple transformer. Not necessarily a solid core, but a core. So passing electricity through one coil of this wire induces electricity to flow through the other. We already talked about uh, inductance, right? And the number of turns in each coil determines a change in voltage. So let's say we've got coil number one, which we'll call the primary coil. This is the coil where we're going to send electricity through the wire, Let's say that primary coil has five turns, and coil number two, which is our secondary coil, has 10 turns. Well, then the ratio of turns is one to two. One for primary, two for secondary. And the voltage of the second coil will be double that of the first coil. This is a step-up transformer. We're stepping up the voltage. We're increasing it by a factor of two. Now, if the primary coil has 10 turns and the secondary coil has five turns, that's a two to one ratio. That means the voltage of the second coil will be half that of our first coil. This is a step down transformer. So using this, we can then push voltage up on terrestrial power lines uh, that are using alternating current. Again, this only works with alternating current, not direct current then you can uh, increase the voltage for long distance transmission. You can overcome the problem of loss due to resistance. Uh, essentially, you've just you turn the pressure on so much that it's it's powering through that. Now you have to have the right kind of cables to make that happen. You have to have the transformers all along the way. and you have to step down the voltage before you feed that current into, say a business or a house. But it's entirely possible to send electricity long distances over ground using transformers. Anyway, it's one thing to have a transformer above the waves. If you've ever been around when a transformer blows out, you know that this is a spectacular and often terrifying event. There's a very loud boom. It's like a thunderclap or a shotgun going off. And then there's a shower of sparks. And then all the power goes out. And it happens like in that order instantaneously, it seems. Uh, Now, that is inconvenient here upon the surface world, but below the waves, that would be much worse. So we have to keep that in mind when we're talking about subsea cables. Some of the solutions that we have to us here on the surface would not be available to us underwater. Now, Samuel Morse himself, tested the viability of an underwater telegraph cable. Uh, He used a wire coated in tar and India rubber to insulate the wire from the water because he didn't want to uh, lose electricity through the water, essentially. He submerged the wire in the New York Harbor and he sent a telegraph signal through it. And the experiment was a success. The signal came out the other side. It, It worked. So as early as 1842, engineers understood that an undersea cable was possible. The question was, could it be made practical? The first underwater cable using gutta percha as an insulator was laid between Deutz and Cologne across the River Rhine in 1847. And then in 1849, an electrician with the Southeastern Railway succeeded in laying two miles of cable off the coast of England uh, around the Kent region. But the first commercial subsea cable would follow the year after that. It was 1850, and two brothers, Jacob Brett and John Watkins Brett, created the English Channel Submarine Telegraph Company. Now, the brothers had proposed laying a cable under the sea through the English Channel and connecting the port towns of Dover, England, and Calais, France. Both England and France agreed to this proposal. So the brothers got the funding they needed to to try and make it happen. And they had a deadline that they had to meet. So the brothers purchased cable from a company called the Gutta Percha Company. Uh, The cable had Gutta Percha insulation on it, but it had no armoring to protect it from other hazards. So it's a copper cable with a rubber-like insulating layer on the outside. And that's it. Uh, It was just a single copper wire, too. It was not and there were not multiple cables or wires in this. So in many ways, this would be an experiment. And ultimately, it would be only partially successful uh, in that really it was a failure, but it taught them a lot of lessons. So the cable the brothers used was too light to sink on its own. It would not sink down to the sea floor. So every 100 yards or so, workers on board the ship that would uh, unspool the coil of cable had to attach lead weights to the cable. Uh, The weights ranged between 10 to 30 pounds. And the company used a steam paddle ship called the Goliath to carry the cable across the, the channel. They attached one end of the cable to the Dover shore side of the connection that went up to a telegraph station. And then they began the journey to France. And the ship would have to stop every 100 yards or so in order to sink another weight down with the cable to keep it in place on the ocean floor. And it had to stop each time. So it's not like, you know, they were just leading this out and staying in motion the whole time. They stopped every hundred yards. It took the whole day for the ship to lay the cable across to reach France. And there the team attached the cable on the French side. They attempted to establish an electrical connection. I'm not entirely sure the outcome of that attempt. Like, the, the accounts I read don't seem to really indicate whether or not they were successful in getting an electrical signal all the way across. Uh, At any rate, if they did, it was a weak one. And by the next morning, the connection had been severed and the line was just totally dead. Not long after that, stories began to circulate that some French fishermen had accidentally dredged up the cable in some netting and then subsequently severed the cable. However, that story was never verified. It didn't stop people from spreading variations of that story, including variations that made the fishermen look increasingly uh, dim-witted over time. But the stories that were published immediately following the failure actually suggested that it was the action of the waves off the rocky coast of France that was making the cable rub against rocks and and then break that way. What was certain is that the cable did break, whether it was a human-caused error or because of the action of the waves. And that's probably because there was no armoring on the cable. So, there you go. The brothers sent a letter to the Times in England explaining that while their first attempt failed, they had learned a great deal in the process, and they explained that the thing that they had attempted had never been done before, and as such, they were going in ignorant of what would and wouldn't work. But through this experience... They had learned some valuable lessons and were more convinced than ever that a cable connecting England to the European continent would work. Whether they wrote that letter in an effort to, you know, make sure they still had funding for future attempts, or this was a genuine expression of their enthusiasm, I don't know. Maybe it was a mixture of both, or maybe it was something else entirely. But the important thing is, they were right. When we come back, I'll explain and tell the rest of their story. and you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision?
1: AT&T Fiber, live like a Gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details.
0: All right. So the Brett brothers still had some time left before their agreements with France and England would expire, specifically with the French government. And if that happened, they were going to have to go through the whole process of securing permission all over again. That was not a guarantee, especially, you know, after having failed their first try. So they were determined to make another go at it before time was up. And this time they would add more protections for the cable. Uh, That cable would contain not one, but four copper wires, each insulated by gutta Percha. In fact, Each wire had a double layer of gutta-percha insulation so that you had a wire that was the core, and then you had a rubber case, essentially, on the outside of that, and then a second rubber case on the outside of that. The engineers then bound those four wires together uh, with yarn soaked in tar and tallow. So together, the yarn, tar, tallow mixture, there's some other stuff in there as well, and the four... Uh, wires encased in gutta percha served as the core of the cable itself, and that soaked yarn provided some more stability and strength. The bound cables now formed a kind of rope, and the next step was to weave 10 strands of galvanized iron wires around the rope to provide armor protection. Galvanization is a process through which you apply a protective coating of zinc into onto something like iron or steel. Typically, the way it works is you make whatever thing you're making out of iron or steel, and then you immerse that in molten zinc, which then adheres to the exterior of the metal. That helps prevent rusting, which is an important consideration if you've got a cable that's going to be submerged in salt water throughout its lifespan. You know, salt water will cause stuff to rust pretty darn quickly. So the... Iron wires were protected with this zinc coating and the they were they measured about 5/16 of an inch in diameter. And like I said there were 10 of them that would be woven together to create the armored sheath for this cable. Now according to a piece in the Illustrated London News, the brothers employed an engineer named George Fenwick who invented and built a machine in just 10 days to weave these iron wires around the cable of, you know, copper wire and yarn. And it had to be fast and it had to be delicate. It could not damage the copper itself. If the copper broke inside the rope, then you could have a broken connection. I would love to describe this machine to you, but I've only seen a few descriptions without visual aids. I think I would really do a a poor job of explaining it. But let's talk about what the machine had to do. It had to draw this rope, this this cable of yarn and copper wires, through a machine and had to weave around that rope the iron wires in a pattern that was tight enough to provide armor protection for the copper inside. And it had to do it without breaking the copper. The machine was able to draw off 11 inches of cable in a single revolution of its steam engine. And it had a revolutions per minute speed of 18. So it would revolve 18 times, and 11 inches of cable would go through each revolution. That means that if I'm doing my math correctly, it could weave the iron armoring for 16 and a half feet of cable every minute, which is pretty impressive. Now, granted, they're making miles and miles of cable. In fact, Overall, the primary cable was 24 miles long, and it took about three weeks to make the whole thing. And the plan was to use those 24 miles of cable to span the 21 miles of distance between Dover and Clay, the thought being that the three extra miles would be plenty to deal for the fact that you're sinking it under the water. As it turns out, the cable wasn't quite long enough to reach. So in the end, they actually had to splice an additional mile of cable onto the French side of this in order to make a connection work. But fortunately, that would work out. Now, the 24 miles of cable, the primary cable, weighed around 180 tons. And when it was coiled up, it made a coil that measured 15 feet in diameter on the inside of the coil, 30 feet in diameter on the outside of the coil. Once constructed, crews loaded the cable onto a steamship called the Blazer. Now, the ship was pretty much gutted before the crews loaded the cable onto it. They pretty much stripped it of everything. And essentially it became a barge that would be pulled by tugboats, a pair of them. Now this was in Wapping, an area in London on the Thames River. So the tugboats would tow the blazer out the Thames uh, down to the sea and around the coast of England to Dover. Now the laying of the cable would not Go smoothly. For one thing, while the iron weaving machine was a work of genius and while it was able to work pretty quickly, it was not always flawless. Um, There were some breaks in the iron wires along the length of the cable. So you had little bits where, you know, a strand of iron would be broken a little bit and it would start to stick out. This created surfaces upon which something could snag if you weren't careful this would become important as the crew laid the cable between Dover and Calais and the first problem popped up right away so the coil still aboard the blazer which again was being towed by some tug steamers snagged as it was uncoiling and they were laying the cable into the sea so the tugboats had started moving a little too quickly they they got up to a top speed that was like five knots, which isn't super fast, but it was too fast to uncoil the cable safely. And one of those broken iron wires snagged on uh, a surface as the the cable was being uncoiled and put into the ocean. And an 18-yard length of that cable was stripped of that one strand of iron wire. Not the whole iron casing, but one of the 10 strands of wire stripped away. Now. The armor consisted of 10 iron wires, so this was not, you know, a true disaster. But it did send the message that they needed to go a little more slowly, which was tough because the weather was also really bad. So spending more time out in bad weather on the sea, not a high priority. But the captains of the tugboats were told, don't hit the steam quite so hard. Then the weather started getting rough and the tiny ship was tossed so to speak, and as the ships got closer to France, the seas were very heavy and a strong wind was blowing, and at one point, the tow rope connecting the blazer to the tug ships snapped, and the blazer was set adrift, and it took some time to reconnect the blazer to the tug ships, during which the blazer had drifted about a mile and a half off course, the delay meant that it was near nightfall when they were finally approaching France, and the storms in the darkness meant conditions were just too dangerous to complete the connection. So the blazer anchored for the night. The next day, the weather was not much better, and the tug ships pulled the blazer to within a mile of the shore of France, but they couldn't really get any closer because of the weather. So the crew decided to attach the end of the cable to a buoy, And this freed up the blazer and the tug ships towed it back to England. Now, the captain of another ship called the Fearless took over. His ship took up the end of the cable that was secured to the buoy and then brought it a little bit further, like another hundred yards or so, and then moored the cable. And the next day, representatives from the Gutta Perch Company, uh, uh, they joined the Fearless and they brought along with them an additional mile length of cable. So then the crew spliced the two cables together and formed a new one. And then they brought the fresh length of cable onto shore of France after much delay. And a French crew then laid the cable up to the French connection, uh, not the movie, but the actual connecting terminal point for the French side of the telegraph system. And the crew also buried some of the cable to keep it protected. Uh, Upon testing the cable, the teams were pleased to find out that they had established a working signal line between Dover and Calais, and they actually did a heck of a demonstration to prove that it was working. It's one of my favorite stories about testing a technology. Okay, so here's what they did. At Calais, there are fortifications. I mean, it's a port town in France, and that's across the English Channel from England. England and France had had sometimes a contentious relationship in history, so there were ramparts along parts of Calais, and on them was a a cannon. So engineers connected the cannon to this electrical signal line connected back to England. And a current with sufficient voltage would ignite the cannon's ignition system, which would then cause the cannon to fire. And so, many miles away, across the English Channel, an engineer sent a pulse of electricity from Dover, England, to go through the subsea cable, and that provided the juice necessary to make a cannon in France fire. obviously, this was not the first time that the English made the French fire a cannon, but at least this time, there were no hostilities involved. Now, the telegraph in this case used the pointing needle mechanism that I referred to earlier rather than Samuel Morse's version. That makes sense. Morse code, when it was first introduced, only had codes for the letters that we typically encounter here in America. So in America, it's pretty unusual to run into uh, characters that have an accent on them, like an accent ague, for example, or letters that have an umlaut or anything like that. Over in Europe, it's more common. So they needed to have a method that would allow for that. Now, despite all the bumps along the way, the cable seemed to work exactly as was intended. The insulation around the copper wires remained secure, even after some of that iron armor had been stripped off the cable. And the Submarine Telegraph Company, uh, the, the name had simplified over the years, uh, received some criticism for putting the entire endeavor at risk because they did this operation during unfavorable weather. Essentially, some people were saying, you're really lucky that this works because you're an idiot for having to lay down subsea cable when the seas are so rough. However, in defense of the company, they didn't really have a choice in the matter because they were rapidly approaching the deadline that France had set. And if they did not get the cable laid in time, then the whole project was going to be a failure and all the money was going to go away. So... Really, this all happened in the nick of time, and those risks were necessary once if they wanted to actually, you know, make this work. Now, to send signals through cables of great length, companies need to supply, like I said, a good deal of voltage to overcome resistance. But there were other issues that placed fundamental limits on how far or how fast you could transmit electricity and thus information across simple copper wire. So we're going to talk a little bit about that before I wrap up, and then in the next episode, we'll talk more about the transatlantic telegraph cable. So I've mentioned resistance and voltage and current, but things get significantly more complicated when we start talking about transmitting a signal across very long cables that are underwater or underground. Uh, Now, technically, these things happen in shorter cables, too, but if the distance is short enough you might not even notice that there's a problem, or it may not be bad enough for it to be an issue. But we definitely see them over great distances with cables that are submerged or buried. Michael Faraday, whom I've talked about frequently on this podcast, a true genius, uh, he had a hypothesis about undersea cables or uh, buried cables. And this was based off the observation that another smarty pants named Sir Francis Ronalds had observed way back in 1823. He saw that if you had two insulated wires of equal length and gauge, and you buried one of them, and you tried to pass electrical signals through each of them, the above ground one would work just as you would expect, but the one that was buried would have trouble carrying the signal. The signal seemed to be moving more slowly, as if something were putting the brakes along the way. Faraday concluded that this was because of induction between the wire and the earth surrounding the wire, or in the case of submerged sea cables, the water. So what does that actually mean? Well, essentially, the cable and the water behave kind of like a Leyden jar or Leyden jar. If you pass an electric current through the cable, it induces an electric charge, an opposite electric charge in the water and opposite charges attract one another. This attraction is kind of like putting the brakes down on a signal. It doesn't stop it, but it slows it down. They called it retardation of a signal. Faraday described the flow of electricity along an underwater cable as behaving like a wave, which honestly was really ingenious. He said that the result is you would first get a weak signal from the receiving end, and that signal would slowly grow in strength, then the strength would start to fade away again, and this would happen in cycles. Again, very much like waves crashing on a beach. Then we've got William Thompson, who would later be known as Lord Kelvin, another super important scientist. Not only would he propose the system of absolute temperature, and we would later describe this in units called Kelvin, zero Kelvin being absolute zero, he was also instrumental in telegraphic engineering. Thompson built on Faraday's work, realizing that the diameter of the conductor was fundamentally important when determining the speed at which a signal will travel through a cable. And he also came up with an equation to describe how signals pass through cable. And it goes like this. The speed of a signal passing through a wire decreases as the square of the cable length increases. So signaling speed has an inversely proportional relationship to cable length. Assuming that you're sticking with the same cable gauge. Uh, Gauge in this case relates to a cable's capacity and resistance. The larger the diameter of the cable, the lower the resistance will be. And we're going to stop here. But that issue that Lord Kelvin found would become one of the big challenges to overcome when looking at laying very long subsea cables. So in our next episode, we'll talk more about the quest to lay a cable along the Atlantic Ocean so that we could connect Europe to North America, and about the engineering issues that we needed to figure out, and then about how Lord Kelvin came up with even more important ideas about how to deal with this so that it could become practical. But we'll cover all that in our next episode. If you have suggestions for future episodes, be like Antrix. Send me a, a message on Twitter. The handle we use is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. TechStuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.